Hey, Prime members, you can listen to That Spooky early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all, not taking into account each person's individual needs. Noom takes into account dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs to build a plan that works for you. Everyone's journey is different, so your daily lessons are personalized to you and your goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your free trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Whether you're shipping 100 packages a month or thousands, ShipStation lets you automate routine shipping tasks and easily handle returns. Manage orders, print labels, compare rates, optimize every shipment, and automate delivery notifications with ShipStation's easy-to-use dashboard. Plus, you can access industry-leading discounted rates from USPS, UPS, DHL, and Global Post, with discounts up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. Over 130,000 companies have grown their e-commerce businesses with ShipStation, and 98% of companies that stick with ShipStation for a year become customers for life. Optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Use promo code WONDERY today at ShipStation.com to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com promo code WONDERY. Spooky. I'm Johnny. And I'm Tyler. And this is a weekly podcast that seeks to answer the age-old question, if you die wearing a wig, do you become a ghost with a wig? Ooh, that is a good question. Yeah, like, I know you can't take it all with you, but can you take a little bit of it with you? Like, like a, a little travel bag? Yeah, like a wig collection? Yeah. A hat box, maybe? Just a jewelry box, if anything else? Yeah. A bang piece? Anything. Yeah, like, what are the fashion choices in the afterlife? Yeah, and do I have to plan a death wig? These are just the things I need to know. Listen, you need to get your affair in order. Thank you. All right. So welcome, everybody. Welcome. Yeah. Episode 113. Ooh, lucky 113. Yes. This is a story about a girl named Lucky. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Hit it. All right. So let's get into some spooky gay bullshit, shall we? Let's do it. I have something that I would like to share on this good day. I love it. And this one comes straight out of Colorado, baby. Oh, Colorado. Uh-huh. So it's that time of the year for many of us where the nights are getting longer and the days are getting colder. It's late fall time, baby. Oh, my God. What are you trying to sell? Amu, Johnny. Stick with me. Yeah, you got a trench coat full of pumpkin spice mix. Oh, I do. You're like, I got the good shit, baby. Listen, this is the time of the year where that stuff's starts to become scarce mm-hmm. so you can mark up a premium for that thank you uh-huh but anyway as i was saying it's the time of the year where it's starting to get colder and 
most of us probably don't enjoy the cold, but for some people, it is literally a life or death situation. Yeah. Now, I read this article on insider.com about an anonymous 30-year-old man from Colorado who was doing his thing, taking a good hot shower. And we love it. We love a hot shower. Yeah, we stand a hot shower. We do. Yeah, this account is now a hot shower stand account. Thank you. You're welcome. The thing is, though, when he was done and stepped out into the cold bathroom, the man just dropped to the floor out of nowhere. He started hyperventilating and his whole entire body started breaking out into massive hives. So the family or the people that were there with him heard the commotion and they called 911 right away. And when paramedics arrived, they suggested that he was suffering from a severe allergic reaction and had gone into anaphylactic shock. Holy shit. So they tried to give him a dose of epifrenaline. (laughs) The stuff in an EpiPen. Oh, yeah. You heard of her? I think I went to school with her. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) She was real cute. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, they administered a dose of this to try and reverse the reaction and they gave him some oxygen to help him breathe. Mm -hmm. But on his rush to the hospital in the ambulance, his condition only seemed to worsen. So at the emergency room, doctors gave him another infusion of the FFMMM and admitted him to the ICU. So indeed, he was allergic to something, but they just didn't know what it was. Now, once the man was stabilized, the doctors had a little think think and they started to put two and two together. So the man was taking a hot shower and he got out and he had an allergic reaction. Mm -hmm. Paramedics stabilized him somewhat, took him out to the ambulance where this worsened. And then in the hospital, they were able to stabilize him. Using the FFMFFM. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. Now, going through the cause and effect of all of this, the man's allergic reaction seemed to be caused by the cold. Oh. And that is what the doctors sort of came to the conclusion about. So they decided to do the super duper exclusive test called the ice cube test. Okay. Now, this test involved putting an ice cube on the patient's skin for a few minutes, and if hives developed, this person was probably allergic to the cold. So they administered the test to the 34-year-old, and sure enough, after about five minutes, hives began to appear on his skin where the ice cube had been. Oh, no, ma'am. So the man was then diagnosed with a condition called cold urticaria, And it's an affliction that affects just 0.1% of the population. And cold weather, ice drinks, and cold water can all trigger reactions, which can range from itchy hives to digestive issues to anaphylactic shock. And is this something that can kind of happen later on in life? Usually, from what I can tell, it usually happens in kids and and people who are younger. And then they sort of like grow out of it over the years. But in this case, they think that maybe he always had it. The thing is, he had just moved to America from the Philippines like this year. So this was his really first experience in the bitter, bitter cold. In the Philippines, he wouldn't have really experienced that. And maybe like cold drinks and things like that don't affect him. But 
full-on cold all over his body, it sure as hell does. Dang, baby. Uh-huh. So ultimately, he was given some antihistamines in the hospital and some steroids just to kind of like stabilize him, and his condition did begin to improve. So he was prescribed a lotion that would help preserve body heat. Apparently, that's a thing. Oh. And he was also given an EpiPen, which he would have to have on him at all times, and he was also given a steady dose of antihistamines. You know, I bet that doctor just gave him some heated lube. <laughs> You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. yeah. He was yeah. like, hey, have fun, baby. KY Why don't you buy some silk sheets while you're at it? Shave your whole body and just slip and slide. Right. Why yeah. Not? Yeah. So, obviously, this man has to live with this condition. He has to deal with it. He has a few options. The best option would be to avoid cold weather altogether. Mm -hmm. But if he has to stay in Colorado, basically, he just has to be really careful not to expose his entire body to any kind of cold air. The thing is, though, he really just stepped out from a hot shower into a bathroom yeah. that would have probably been getting pretty steamy and maybe a little bit chilly, but it probably wouldn't be like sub-zero kind of temperatures. You know That's what I mean? That's the thing, yeah. So, yeah, he's going to have to bundle up baby yeah that's no joke yeah but anyway i just thought it would be a, a good story to tell in the sense that like when you're outside and you're like oh it's cold and i'm uncomfortable and i don't like it and i'm cranky just be thankful that you're not on the floor unable to breathe covered in hives. oh my god thanks dad i didn't realize how good i had it yeah you can call me aesop from now on thank you so much yeah i love the fables all right well thank you for that spooky gay bullshit diva you're welcome love it all right well i've got a little bit to share with the class as well okay all right so this one was something that i found on ripley's.com that's ripley's believe it or not website oh i know her they've got some good shit mm -hmm. all right so it was this article it was like a little baby snippet of an article but it was about this canadian woman who found herself victim of an alleged curse Ooh, yes so Get this, a travel agent in the city of Pompeii recently received a package from a woman anonymously going by the name Nicole. Now, Nicole sent this package to this travel agent, and the person's like, I don't really remember a Nicole, but okay, opens it up, and inside they find two tiles that look to be pretty old. Okay. Fragments of ceramic and some pieces of an old vase. Okay. And there's also an apology note in this package. Oh. Yes. So, the <laughs> travel agent opens up the apology note and it reads uh, basically from this woman who calls herself Nicole says I was in Pompeii 15 years ago and I went to a trip to the archaeological park of Pompeii where I ended up taking the following artifacts and you know pieces of the area or relics or whatever that you know she'd come across that is this thing that you just do not do to quote Mariah Carey that's a no-no yeah absolutely and it's some Indiana Jones shit like you don't take shit while you're out on vacation baby no it's an no. artifact leave it where it's supposed to be yeah and you don't know what is cursed so the tea is Nicole writes in this letter that she has had nothing but bad luck since her visit to Pompeii and she believes that it all has something to do with the artifacts and you know stuff that she was sending back and it's some real world shit okay that I believe but girl it took you 15 years well basically things just had to start piling up and get to a boiling point for her and essentially drive her to the point that she felt that she had to deliver them back okay and, fair enough I don't know you know things just had to stack up so 
get into this. Nicole had experienced two bouts of breast cancer oh. in those 15 years and a ton of financial issues. Okay. And she believed that it probably had something to do with the relics. Now, she essentially wrote in the note, we are good people and I don't want to pass this curse on to my family. Which is, you know, like, spooky ookiness aside... That's really unfortunate. It's really unfortunate that, that this person is going through this really, really hard time and is just kind of doing this as a last-ditch effort, being like, I don't know what is happening. Maybe I'm just cursed by, you know, these pieces of rock and vase that I took while I was out on vacation. That's exactly it. I mean, we've definitely felt that way when shit was piling up and we had that piece of Boleskin house in our closet. And it was like, could this be causing everything? Absolutely. Now, the thing is, Nicole had actually asked for these items to be returned to the location in which she found them in the archaeological park of Pompeii. Uh-huh. But the person who is kind of like the interim director of the park had said in an interview that I found in this Ripley's uh, like little blurb that essentially it would be really hard to return everything to the exact location where she found it or to really be able to determine where it all came from. Sure. So essentially they're just kind of like, well, we'll take it, but good luck, Nicole. Right. And yeah, it's really unfortunate. I yeah. yeah. So my heart goes out to Nicole, but let's all remind ourselves when the world opens back up and we head back out into you know our different corners respectively just don't take shit that doesn't belong to you exactly look with your eyes not with your hands i mean look who's aesop now thank you mm-hmm. yeah now let's get into oopsie poopsies and housekeeping yes so what do you want to talk about first do you want to do oopsie poopsies do you want to do housekeeping um let's do okay let's do housekeeping okay Beautiful. So, first bit of housekeeping that I want to attend to. Do you remember that bonus series called Queens of the North that we did a few months ago where we recapped Drag Race Canada? Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. So... It's been sitting up on our feed for a while, and Tyler and I have been talking, and we just kind of want to take it off the feed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It served its purpose while the show was happening, but now it's just kind of like this random thing in the middle of all of our regular regular episodes. Yeah. So essentially, it, it can just get odd if you're not really like watching Canada's Drag Race and you want to listen through to the episodes, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, I don't need to describe the admin side of it all to you, but what we are going to do is just take them off of the podcast feed and they are going to be moved over to the secret society that doesn't suck. Yes. So... If you are part of the secret society that doesn't suck, they will pop up in your podcast RSS feed for the Spooky Snacks episodes. They'll all be on there. You can still listen to them. But yeah, as of this weekend, so let's say by Saturday, as of the release of this episode, they're not going to be collecting dust up on the feed anymore. No, they're going north. Yeah, they're going north, baby. Now, that's my first bit of housekeeping that I want to attend to. My second bit of housekeeping, just as a bit of a reminder to everyone, t-shirts, they're a thing. Boom, 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 t-shirts. So, Spooky Bitch t-shirts are still out on pre-order. You can still go to thatspooky.com slash store until November 30th of 2020. That's Hug Halloween officially, baby, Mm -hmm. uh, to get your pre-order in. And then the shirt will be to you by January of 2021 or around there if you're super interested. International. Yeah, if you're super international, maybe it takes a little bit longer, but we will do our best to communicate all of that stuff when the time comes. And that's okay because you're super, so you're like a little bit better than the rest. See, <laughs> yeah. so it takes a little bit of extra time to you because we put a little bit of extra sugar and love onto it. Exactly. It has to turn into a shooting star first. That's the tea. So mm-hmm. get into those t-shirts, baby. Now, two other things that I want to remind people of. If you're on the secret society that doesn't suck, as of the release of this episode,
episode on Friday. That's November 20th, 2020. At 9 p.m., we are going to be doing a watch-along on Discord of the movie Ginger Snaps. Ooh, she's a Canadian classic. It's going to be real cute. So you can hop onto the Discord 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Friday, November 20th, and you can watch Ginger Snaps along with us. And I'm sure you can find it. There are a few different streaming platforms, right, Tyler? Yeah, we've shared some links to some options on the Secret Society. So Absolutely. So get into that. And if you're also on the Secret Society on Sunday, November 22nd at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time yet again, we are also going to be doing Spooky Bitch Bingo. Yes. Yeah. So they're going to be prizes. It's going to be a really good time. It's all going to be on Zoom. And the link is up on the Secret Society or will be within a few days. So get into it, babies. Now, that was housekeeping. Do you have any oopsie poopsies? I sure do. Look so, at us. Last week, I was talking about the White House, seeing how a couple of English people up here in, it was not Canada at the time, uh, went down to the United States and decided to set the little White House on fire. Yes. And in telling that story, I said that the White House was originally pink. Well, apparently that's a bunch of hooey. It wasn't actually pink. It was originally just like a raw stone, but apparently sometime in the 1798s Mm -hmm. or 1798. And such as the U.S. Americans in the 1798s. Yeah, they put a limestone whitewash over the original kind of infrastructure of the house to protect it from weather and so that it didn't crack in the cold. But apparently it was never pink. Okay. Yeah, and I just want to thank Doug for uh, shining a light on that fallacy for us. And Doug did point out, though, that there is the um, kind of parliamentary building in Argentina named Palace Rosa, and that is pink. So sometimes people maybe are conflating one for the other. Well, get your life down at the Palace Rosa then. Mm-hmm. And apparently, that. apparently, the reason why it's pink allegedly is that they mixed the white paint in with cow blood because that helped weatherproof the building too. Oh. Yeah. Okay. That's cute. Oh, good to know. Now I know what to do with my cow blood. Yes, you do. You know, just my leftovers. All right. Well, I've got two things that I just want to cover real quickly. So, First of all, we got reached out to by a spooky bitch named Maria, who just wanted to let us know, you know, when we were talking about banshees and you threw out the idea that maybe the sounds of the owls were potentially sounds of coyotes? Oh, yeah. Well, Maria just wanted to let us know that there are no coyotes in the UK, Tyler. I didn't know that. Yeah, well, now you know. So thank you, Maria, from Instagram. We really appreciate it. Yes, we do. Now, second of all, we were reached out to by Shannon in an email, which was very nice. And they had pointed out to us that we have made the mistake twice on this show, not just once, but twice Uh about the song (laughs) Fire Burning. Now, in my ignorance, I said that the song Fire Burning, uh, which I quoted quite a bit on my spontaneous combustion episode, yes. uh, was by Sean Paul. Well, no, 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 no. It is by Sean Kingston. A very different Sean. Thank you. And I should know better. So I apologize for that. And I appreciate Shannon reaching out with that bit of information. Absolutely. So, yeah. We love it. We love being corrected. You know, we love making good on these things. Yes, we do. And yeah. one more oopsie poopsie. In Argentina, it's not called 
Casa Rosa. Or sorry, it's not called Palace Rosa. It's called Casa Rosa. Love it. All right. Oopsie poopsies on the fly, baby. Hello. Let's do this. Now, this is great because usually we just breeze through this moment and we go, oh, no, I'm perfect. I'm beautiful. We just quote Aja talking at Valentina in RuPaul's Drag Race. But in this moment, it's unavoidable. We had four oopsie poopsies. We do. We did. That's and one Johnny, for the books. I'll tell you what. She wasn't beautiful tonight. Not tonight. No, right. So that's all that we have. That's it. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news! With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. All right, let's get into this then. I'm going first. Yes, you are. Yes. All right. Well, I hope you are ready. I hope you are lubed because this week I am going to be talking about true crime. All right. I am all of those things. So let's get into it. Cool. I also hope that you brought a swim cap. Now, I want to take you to a special little place called Michigan. Possibly a Michigan. Yeah. Remember that? Oh, possibly a Michigan. How could I forget possibly a Michigan? If you don't know what we're talking about, go look it up. It's on YouTube. We posted it on our Instagram at one point. One point. Yeah. yeah it was like a piece of video art that was made around the 80s. It's real fun. It's real fun. It's real creepy. It's real weird. It's just a trip to the mall. It's kind of like this podcast, really, when you think about it Truly. at the end of the day. But anyway, Michigan, this is where we're going to be going today. It's also home of the catfish, as I've been kind of finding out lately. I've been watching old episodes of that show Catfish. Uh -huh. I kind of talked about this on the Secret Society that doesn't suck, but I just can't believe how many of those dang episodes take place in Michigan. There must not be a lot to do in Michigan. Is anybody from Michigan? Let us know. Yeah, yeah, please do. Right in. But don't catfish us. Anyway, so what we are going to be talking about today is the murder of Marilyn Depew which is a case that you probably haven't heard of, mm -mm. but you've probably heard of some things that have been inspired by the events surrounding this case. Okay. Yeah, so get into it. Now, first of all, we've got to meet the Depew family. So, Dennis and Marilyn Depew were a couple that lived together just outside of Coldwater, Michigan. I'm not exactly sure when the two of them got married, but what I do know is that Dennis was born Dennis Henry Depew on June 3rd of 1943 in Sturgis, Michigan, and he was raised in a town called Burr Oak. Okay. He ended up graduating Burr Oak High School, so it looks like he stayed there for his entire life. Mm -hmm. And he ended up attending Michigan State University, where he got a bachelor's degree in business education. So shortly after getting that degree, 
He ends up moving around a little bit, teaches business education in Portland and California for a little bit of time before ultimately settling back in Michigan in cold water. And it was around this time that he ended up marrying Marilyn. But again, I don't exactly know when. But I do know that Dennis DePew worked uh, for the state of Michigan in the Department of Treasury as a property tax specialist. Sounds exciting. Yeah, he was putting that education to good use, honey. Right? Like, why is a department so kind of not that exciting named something like Treasury? I know, right? right? You'd think it'd be way more glittery. Yeah. Anyway, so Marilyn was born on January 24th of 1941 in Detroit, Michigan. And while not a lot is known about her life, at least publicly, we do know that she worked as a guy counselor at Coldwater High School and she was liked by a lot of people. She seemed to be a really sweet person and she was known throughout the community. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, so the DePews lived together close to the Indiana border in the Algonzi Township. Now I apologize if I got that wrong. That is A-L-G-A-N-S-E-E and I looked up the pronunciation but they seemed to live a pretty comfortable life on, you know, a pretty decent piece of land with their three children. So life seemed to be pretty good on the outside for the Depew family. However, behind closed doors, things were less than idyllic for the family. Just like Blue Velvet. Very much that. They may as well have had a severed ear in the front yard. Mm -hmm. So, it was said that after the three kids had started to grow up a bit, Dennis had really started to begin to isolate himself from the family, and his behavior toward Marilyn had grown to be increasingly shitty. Basically, it just seemed like the two weren't really in love anymore, and he was not handling it well. Although the reality was really that Dennis had been alienating everyone, and then suddenly they just didn't want to be around him anymore, and he started to blame it on his wife. He basically said that she was trying to turn the kids against him. Right, he was a no-accountability queen. Exactly. So, finally, at a certain point, Marilyn had had enough, and in the late 80s, after 18 years together, Marilyn had decided to seek a divorce. Which, let's just say, Dennis was not into. Okay, that's so strange. It's like you don't want to be together, and then you have your moment to not be together, and then you want to be together. Well, yeah, that's the thing. He just wants to have his cake and eat it too. He wants to be able to push people away when he wants to be able to push people away, but then he wants them to still be standing there, laying in wait for him when he needs them, and, you know, ready to forget when he was just pushing them away. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's kind of how the ideal world for these kind of abusive assholes works. Uh But the thing is, regardless of how Dennis DePew felt about things, the divorce ended up becoming finalized in December of 1989. Now, when this happened, Dennis was given bi-weekly visitation rights with the children, but let's just say the kids were not too keen on this. Okay. You know, even though the courts appointed him the bi-weekly rights, the kids just didn't really want to spend much time with their father at all. Uh-huh. So, the divorce goes through, and Dennis has got a little bit more bullshit up his sleeve, because while getting everything divided up, in the proceedings, he's able to weasel a guest house on the property to take over as his office. Yeah, so they had a little bit of property that they were able to split up between the couple, but essentially, Dennis ended up convincing the lawyers to fight for him to get the guest house on the family home's property to use as his own, like, separate office. Ooh, that's weird. Yeah, so he was still able to come onto the property even after being divorced from Marilyn and, you know, being sent away by her request. Uh He was still coming in there daily, doing his work, all that kind of stuff. And to make matters even worse, after things were said and done and the new normal was kind of established with Dennis running his office out of the guest house and Marilyn just trying to move on with the kids... 
Yeah. She changed all the locks on the house numerous times, and it was said that there were quite a few times where Marilyn would come home and Dennis would just be inside the house. The and fuck? the kids had not let him in or anything like that, but he'd just be hanging out on the couch watching TV like there was nothing going on. Whoa, no. Yes. No, 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 no. Absolutely. Like, I see a red flag. I see a red flag. I see all kinds of red Bitch, flags. Bitch, the guest house is decked out in red flags. Yeah. Like, somebody just straight up carried that motherfucker in red. Yeah. So, the thing is, Marilyn is getting really freaked out. She continues to change the locks over and over again, but Dennis keeps finding a way in the house. So, she is getting unnerved. Then, around this time, Dennis also starts to exhibit other troubling behavior. He starts to talk to those around him about suicide and murder. Mm. Yeah. It just starts to casually bring them up in conversation, which is really alarming for those around him because he was never the type to talk about that kind of stuff before. And, you know, given the circumstances that everyone was keenly aware of, yeah. it, it just wasn't a very good look. Right, because the neighbors must have thought that whatever was happening was pretty strange. Oh, shit. Yeah. And I mean, people were aware of it. So... Now we come up to April 15th of 1990. It's Easter Sunday. And Dennis is going over to Maryland's to pick up two of the kids for a visit. Now, he's not picking up all three of the kids because, I, I guess, the youngest child, who I'm not going to name because, really, it's none of these kids' fault that they were born to this prick. So, uh -huh. you know, while the kids' names are Googleable, we're just going to say youngest, middle, and oldest. You know, keep it easy. Yes. But essentially, the youngest just didn't want to go with him. So he was only getting two this time. Time. Now, I mean, why does he even need visits if he's breaking into their house all the time? I know, right? <laughs> it's just so much more convenient that way. Yeah. Yeah. Now, basically, he goes to the house and the other kids start putting up walls immediately because they saw that their younger sibling was able to get away with not having to hang out with their prick of a father for one of these visits. Sure. And this essentially emboldened the other kids to really push back and just straight up say like, no, we're not going to come with you either. Have a great Easter, daddy. And let's just just say Dennis didn't like this very much. Okay. But instead of talking to his kids or, you know, like, oh my God, asking questions or listening to the answers, Dennis decided that he had just had enough. And he decided to turn his sights to Marilyn, who at this point he was completely enraged with. He basically just blamed her in this moment for everything that was going on with the kids. He was projecting all of his bullshit insecurities onto her and essentially just started lashing out at Marilyn. But unfortunately, it wasn't a verbal lash out. He started physically lashing out at her. Oh no. Yeah, so he was yelling, you know, you're turning the kids against me, all that kind of stuff, you're ruining my life. And now trigger warning, we are going to speak about a little bit of domestic violence that that results ultimately in death. Nothing too graphic, but, you know, we are just going to hit the key points of it. But just a warning, you know, you might want to just go ahead like 30 seconds if you want to skip that. But Dennis started pushing Marilyn and essentially he was just completely aggressing. He ultimately pushed her and cornered her toward the basement stairs and then pushed her down the basement stairs. No. Now, she landed at the bottom of the stairs. There was about 10 there. Like, it wasn't a huge flight, mm -hmm. but it definitely wasn't a short one. And he essentially just ran down after her and continued to attack her as the kids watched on. Oh my God. Now, the eldest daughter ran out of the house to the neighbors to try to get some help and she ultimately called the police. 
police, uh-huh. but her two siblings watched in horror as this continued. Now, they were shouting for it to stop, of course, but Dennis dragged Marilyn back up the stairs, who essentially was bloodied at this time, but still conscious. She wasn't able to completely walk on her own, but essentially she was stumbling, he was holding her, and the last thing that the kids saw was Dennis taking Marilyn out of the house saying, I'm just going to take her to a hospital, don't you worry about a thing. Oh and, my god. Yeah, and the kids were trying to get her attention, but she just seemed to be completely punch drunk. Yeah. Like, she was there, just she wasn't able to kind of, like, zoom in on anything that was going on. Yeah. Yeah. So, her two other kids just sit there watching as Dennis puts Marilyn in the van, and they drive away together to the hospital, according to Dennis, to take care of everything that had just happened. Because, uh-huh. you know, in typical abuser fashion, he's going like, okay, we'll fix this. Oh, yeah, you know, just if these things stop, and, you know, all that bullshit. Yeah, and you're also abandoning your children to just, like live in that yeah well don't worry it gets even worse so the thing is the two of them never end up going to the hospital now because the oldest child had just gone to the neighbor's house and alerted the police the police are automatically going out on the hunt for dennis DePew. like when he doesn't show up at the hospital with marilyn yeah they just start combing the roads and it's not until a little bit later that day on april 15th 1990 that they get a lead now a little bit later that day, along a road called Snow Prairie Road, about 20 kilometers outside Coldwater, Michigan, there is a couple that is out taking a Sunday drive. Like I said, it was Easter Sunday, so mm-hmm. it's a beautiful spring day, it's crisp, it's clear, and Ray and Marie Thornton are going out for a drive. The two of them are just kind of like your run-of-the-mill, middle-class, middle-aged white couple from the area. Right. Yeah. So, the two of them are in their car, chatting away as they were driving south down Snow Prairie Road, which is a pretty long stretch of rural road with a few scattered farmhouses and all that kind of stuff. And by the way, I won't lie, I keep wanting to say Snow Fairy, you know, like that lush holiday scent. Ooh. Yeah, that our friend who worked at Lush was like, people kill each other over <laughs> Snow Fairy. It is wild. You like, know she what? saw so many people screaming at each other over that limited edition holiday body wash. Yeah. I would think I would kill for some flying fox. Oh, diva. Yeah, if I could turn back time and get some flying fox or some voice of reason. Ooh. That was my scent from Lush, baby. Those are some good scents. Ooh, those discontinued Lush deep cuts. All right, so... Back to Ray and Marie Thornton. The two of them driving south down Snow Prairie Road. It's Easter Sunday, it's clear outside, it's beautiful, all that good stuff. The couple is driving along when suddenly they realize that they're not alone on the road. So, in their rearview mirror, they see a large van coming up behind them and it's gaining a lot of speed. In fact, soon enough, it's right up on the tail end of their car. Okay. It's driving along behind them and then it just kind of scoops out and passes around them. Now, this is pretty common fare for country roads, so the Thorntons don't think that much of it. In fact, the couple played a bit of a game with license plates that would pass by, so they basically take like the letters of it and they try to make a funny name out of it. So when this van passes by, Marie says GZ. And just as a caveat, it's said, but I, I gotta say Z just for the quote here, but she says GZ. Jeez, he must be in a hurry. And then, you know, they are just beside themselves with Marie's <laughs> swift wordplay. 
Uh-huh. And the two of them basically pull over and swiftly start making out. But uh, no, I wish. But as basically, they continue down the road. They don't really think that much of the interaction. But after a few kilometers, the couple end up coming upon the van again. Okay. But this time, it's not on the road. The van was pulled over by an abandoned schoolhouse between the building and a large metal tank that was on the property. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, geez, he was in a hurry to get to school. Yeah. But this was an abandoned school, like I was saying, along the road. It was the 1908 District School Number 3 on the corner of South Snow Prairie and Southern Road. It was this huge old two-story brick building that was completely abandoned. So, like, you're in a real rush to get to somewhere where there is nobody, sir. Right. And if you're rushing to get somewhere that's very abandoned, Uh that's a little bit sketch. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe you got plans on Easter Sunday. Who knows? But the thing is, as the couple is passing by, they decide to slow down a little bit and see what's going on. They see that the man is outside of the vehicle and he's holding something that Marie couldn't quite make out. But as they approached, it became way more clear what it was. It was a white sheet that was covered in blood. And Marie is immediately alarmed. She tells Ray what she saw. He had his eyes on the road. So, you know, she was the eyes of the whole situation. Uh And the two were extremely uneasy, but they decided to continue down the country road. Now, they continue a little bit further down Snow Prairie Road, trying to shake what they had just seen. They were like, oh, maybe he, you know, spilled jam on himself and was in a real rush to get rid of the evidence. Another jammy boy. Another jammy. Jammy, jammy boy with jammy hands. Who knows? But the thing is, they're driving down Snow Prairie Road in the same direction they were before, and suddenly they hear a vehicle coming up in the distance. They look in the rearview mirror, and once again, they see the van. Now, whoever was in the van was driving with the same fervor that they had before. Uh-huh. Yeah, so this person who had just been skulking around the school is now driving the van, coming up behind them extremely fast, but this time the van doesn't pass. It just continues on behind them, uncomfortably close, riding their bumper for about three kilometers. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, just using scare tactics on the couple, essentially. Basically. Yeah, and then, essentially, the couple didn't really know what to do, but they were starting to get really freaked out by the entire situation. So, Marie goes into the glove box to get a pen and paper to try to write down, you know, the person's license plate or a description of the vehicle, just whatever they could get in the moment. The two had decided that once this was all over, they were at least going to report it to the local police because whoever was in this van was acting extremely suspicious. It's a very Nancy Drew thing to do. Exactly. So Marie is writing down stuff. She can see that it's like a mid-80s cream-colored Chevrolet van with maroon stripes. And at this point, as they recall, they were just thankful that they had just been playing that license plate game because at least they could recollect that G Z were the first two letters of the license plate. That's right. Now, the van was close enough that they weren't actually able to read the plate, so they had to get creative. As they're driving down the road, they notice that there's an intersection coming up. So, Ray ends up turning off on this intersection without using a blinker, which, you know, takes the guy tailing them by surprise. Yes. And they're able to continue up a country road, turn around, and come back down. Now, it turns out that this guy who had just been tailing them for about three kilometers in the van didn't end up following them. So the Thorntons come back to the intersection and they decide to follow back down on South or sorry, Snow Prairie Road. Ooh, so now they're chasing him. Exactly, because they want to be able to get a license plate or something like that. I mean, like this behavior was just too odd not to clock and report to the police. Because I mean again, we're in small town. That's right. Okay, so they are going down the road now and they come across the van. 
by now the van is actually pulled over and the driver is out of the van he has the passenger's side door open in the front and he's got the back door open the driver is at the back door fiddling with something okay as they get closer ray notices that the driver is changing out the license plates oh yeah no. so there's some real nefarious shit going uh-huh. down and then uh, basically he's looking at that marie is clocking what's going on up front and as she looks at this front passenger side door that is wide open she notices that the interior of the door is covered in blood Uh-oh. yeah so this was really not a good sign the thorntons turn back onto snow prairie road and decide to start doubling back where they went so they're starting to go back toward home going on the route that they were just chased on by this motherfucker oh yeah so here's the tea they're going back up the road and they come upon the school and this is when ray and marie thornton decide to get real creative and real nancy drew about the whole situation so the thorntons decide to go to the abandoned school and figure out what this fucker was up to with this white sheet that was covered in blood okay here's the thing i think they have a pretty good idea idea of what he was up to absolutely and the problem with this situation is they might be fucking with a crime scene that's the thing but also the other problem with the situation is that this guy may have seen you going back down the road and he just chased you down the road one way he might be ready to chase you down the road the other way this is true yeah so they pull over at the school and as they said they were really careful not to disturb anything that they were coming across okay but they decide to just go around the perimeter of the school where they saw him walking before and this is when they discover stuffed into a small animal hole on the perimeter of the school grounds there is a white sheet exactly the sheet that he had been holding in his hands Uh and it is drenched in blood Uh -uh. so this is enough evidence for the thorntons that there is something really bad going on here he they're just like bad news banshees baby yeah so they decide to pedal to the metal back home they get to safety and call the police now when the police are called, they're very interested to hear about all of this because of it's been a spicy day for the cold water PD. Let's just <laughs> it say sure that. Has. So law enforcement gets down to the abandoned school ASAP to start investigating the scene. And unfortunately, there's no sign of Dennis DePew anywhere, but they are able to find, you know, the bloody sheet, some tire prints that are in the area, all this kind of stuff. So they start processing things. And soon enough, they're able to deduce that the tire prints belong to Dennis DePew's van and the blood on the sheet belonged to Marilyn DePew. So they essentially had a second part of their crime scene here. Right. Ding dong. Yeah. But they don't have a body or anything like that. Again, Marilyn has just disappeared from the house after being attacked in front of her children. He said he was taking her to safety. We don't know where he's taken her at this point, but we do know that he was ditching the linens off at an abandoned school. Right. Yeah. So it's not until the next day, April 16th of 1990, that Marilyn DePew's body is unfortunately discovered by a highway worker who is working nearby on a road between the school and the DePew's residence. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So it was just outside of Coldwater, Michigan, like I'd been saying. Marilyn had actually been shot once in the back of her head. And as they were able to, you know, very quickly discover this is what had ultimately taken her life. Aye, aye, aye. Dennis DePew, of course, is nowhere to be found. 
However, a few days after the discovery of Marilyn's body, he would find another way to rear his monster-looking ass again. Because I will say he did kind of look like Daddy Monster. Like Herman Monster? Yeah, I was sorry, I forgot his name for a moment. But yeah, oh. he kind of did, but not in a good way, in like a real fugly kind of way. Yeah. I'm saying it. Usually I don't like to call people <laughs> ugly or any version of that. But yeah, you, Dennis DePew fugly ass bitch right you, yeah but that's a herman monster is so sweet and so yeah. caring such a good dad lurch ass bitch all right so a few days after the murders dennis ends up sending a few letters to friends and family members trying to justify what he had done to a friend named jan markowski he had actually wrote that marilyn had many opportunities to treat him well during the divorce and essentially he just posited himself as the victim in all this he said that everything had been taken from him his family his home home his everything and he was just too old and too useless to start over again so he had no other choice i mean he's right about one thing he is pretty useless yeah well i mean those weren't his words but <laughs> if only we could let him know yeah now the thing is he ended up sending a total of 17 letters to a whole bunch of different loved ones throughout the states and most of these were just a repeat of the same 5,000 word declaration completely blaming everyone but himself totally now the family was extremely upset depew was still nowhere to be found the days after the murder and the discovery of Marilyn DePew's body end up turning to weeks. These end up turning to months, which end up turning into a year. Yeah. And the family wants to seek justice. So in that first year, like just before they came up to that point, they ended up reaching out to Unsolved Mysteries, who did a feature on the murder. Mm -hmm. And essentially the discovery of Marilyn's body, all that kind of stuff. But it put out a wanted call for Dennis DePew at the end of it. Sure. Now. This airs on Wednesday, May 20th of 1991, almost a year after the murder of Marilyn. And instantly, it gets a lot of attention from the public at large. Well, sure, because the mystery is kind of solved. They just need to find the person who did it. Yeah, and I mean, it's also low-key, like the America's Most Wanted factor of it all. Like, now there is a nationwide manhunt for this guy. Yeah. So, it is 8.30 on the night that the Unsolved Mysteries episode airs, March 20th of 1991 we are in dallas texas now a woman who goes by mary in the same vein as nicole you know just wanted to keep a little bit private just mary period a little you know a little bit anonymous a little if a girl answers when you call don't hang up you know very much that <laughs> uh -huh. uh, but basically she was returning home where her boyfriend hank queen currently was excuse me yes hank queen i Love it. You won't love it soon, trust me. So, Mary comes home to Hank Queen. Mary, soon to be Mary Queen. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Ooh. Ooh, yeah. Listen, Too close though. to Dairy Queen, though. Too close. Oh, you're right. Yeah, no, no. Anyway, so... Mary rolls up to her home that she shares with Hank. She gets to the driveway and notices that his cream-colored maroon-striped Chevrolet van was parked in the driveway, which was odd for Hank because usually he kept it in the garage. Bitch. Yeah. So Mary goes into the house and Hank was extremely flustered inside. He was feverishly packing, saying that he had to go up north since his mother was suddenly sick and he had to go stay with her. Sure. You know, and you know, maybe have to be with her given the worst. Now, she noted that the TV was on quite loud in the background, but she didn't really have much time to check in on what was happening in the living room, because as soon as Mary came in the door and he explained this to her, Hank basically put her to work. He said, look, I need you to start making sandwiches. I need you to start putting together a little bit of 
lunch for me because this is going to be a long drive and I got business to attend to. Fuck you, Hank Queen. Yeah, well, uh, even if Mary thought this, maybe she just wanted to get him out of there extra quick because you know what? At this point, I'd be like, take your sandwiches and run, bitch. Fine. Yeah. If I've got to bite my tongue and make you a PB&J, potentially with a little bit of spit inside of it, even though like... Who the fuck does that? Don't, Don't do that to people. No. But you know what? I'm just trying to say, I, I would just do what I got to do in the situation to shut this show down. So Mary rolls with it. Soon enough, Hank is on the road. He kisses Mary goodbye on his way out of the house, just grabs his shit, packs up his van and pumps it. Later that night, Mary came to understand exactly what had been going on when right. she learned about her boyfriend's recent TV appearance. This is when she realized that at the time when she had been in the house, Unsolved Mysteries was actually playing on the TV in the background. Uh-huh. And this is why he was kind of distracting her in the kitchen, because he had essentially just watched this and she had walked in just basically as it was all happening. Right. So yeah. she was in the moment. As it was happening, kaboom. Yeah. Now, as it turns out, Hank, quote unquote, wasn't the only person who was watching Unsolved Mysteries that night. A friend of the couple in Dallas, Texas, who was, you know, kind of sniffing the bullshit in the air, mm-hmm. decided to call in a tip to the show with Hank's license plate. And of course, this was passed on to authorities. So after not a lot of time, police were combing the streets for, quote unquote, Hank Queen. Now, it took about four hours after his departure for the police to finally catch up with Dennis DePew. This was when Louisiana troopers spotted him. Now, they ended up going on a 25-kilometer chase, and Dennis DePew ended up breaking through two police barricades. What? Yeah, but the second one ended up being able to successfully shoot out his back tires. And at this point, he was just past the Interstate 20 bridge over the Mississippi River. So, Dennis DePew ultimately turns off of the highway into Vicksburg, Mississippi, and then drives through some streets in town trying to get away. Mm. Now, the police are hot on his tail. They end up setting up a few different blocks, but he ends up ramming into a number of cop cars. The The police end up shooting two more times into the vehicle, which don't end up hitting him, but he ends up shooting back at the police. And now they just have a firefight, essentially. Oh, my God. So... Ultimately, at this point, and trigger warning, we are going to talk about suicide very briefly, so skip ahead 10 seconds if you got to, but it wasn't the police's bullets that ended up ending Dennis DePew's life. Right. The police saw him, essentially after he started to fire back, he took his gun and then just put it in his mouth and shot a single bullet and ended his own life there at the right. age of 47 in front of the police at 4 a.m. And that ultimately was where Dennis DePew's case kind of ended. Right. Yeah, and, you know, they knew exactly what had happened to Marilyn DePew. I mean, just about anyone could tell you that. So there wasn't a lot of figuring out to be done at this point. More or less, it was just cleanup. Right, and you can't make a dead person stand trial, so. Absolutely. And, uh, look, I'm not trying to be too glib. Like, part of the cleanup that I'm talking about is the emotional cleanup and, like, the fallout for these kids because now you have three children that essentially don't have parents. Yeah. I mean, that's an extremely unfortunate situation. Absolutely. But our conversation doesn't quite end here. So, like I said at the beginning of my topic, this case has actually inspired some other things that you may actually know. Because the murder of Marilyn Depew or, you know, the killer Dennis Depew may not ring any bells to the casual true crime fan, and that's A-OK. But let me ask the movie fans, have you ever heard of a film called Jeepers Creepers? 
Bitch, you're right. It's the whole opening scene. Yeah, so let's throw it out there beforehand. Victor Salva is a complete piece of shit. Yeah. No questions asked. None. You can Google that. You can figure that out. I'm just going to leave that there. And I only recently saw Jeepers Creepers. I will throw that out there as well because the allure actually was killed off for me after I learned that the whole shtick of the movie wasn't actually like a creepy auto stalker. But spoiler alert. It's a monster. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it's that tea. But essentially, the opening scene of the movie was freaky as fuck. And like I said, it was the original reason that I had any interest in the movie. Because that shit haunts you. Yeah. It's this brother and sister, uh, the protagonists of the movie, who are essentially being chased down on a country road by the creeper in an extremely imposing vehicle that is hot on their tail. It's an iconic horror movie scene of the early 2000s, which honestly were few and far between. So it's not that hard to be... Uh, <laughs> iconic horror movie from the early 2000s yeah. yeah like i'm pretty sure there was like a pop tart in a movie somewhere that you know could contend with the best of them in the early 2000s uh-huh yeah but anyway pop tart jump scares aside it turns out that victor salva may have not necessarily crafted an amazing horror movie scene as much as he may have ripped off of the shots from a segment that he saw on unsolved mysteries right yeah because if you watch the actual segment on unsolved mysteries it very much looks like that scene from Jeepers Creepers. Like you could kind of put the two up next to each other. And even the cinematography is kind of the same. Like they eerily look similar. It's like shot for shot, baby. Uh, almost, but not exactly shot for shot. But anyway, because of this and because of the internet's recent rediscovery of this, the case has been gaining a little bit more popularity, you know, thanks to the internet uh -huh. and likely people being bored during the 2020 coronavirus pandemic. It's true. But I will say, because of all this added interest in the case, there is an active geocache that one can use to take themselves to the remote location where Dennis DePew was spotted along Snow Prairie Road. Ooh. Yeah, so you can go in and access that location if you're nearby and have a vehicle and a GPS and all that kind of fun stuff. It's you like know? rando nodding. Yeah, kind of. yeah, but the original rando nodding in a way. <laughs> yeah. However, I will say that the abandoned school that we were talking about has burnt down, at least in March 2017. There was quite a fire there. I'm not sure if it's completely down right now, but it did get pretty fucked up. So don't expect to be able to freely walk around everywhere. Right. But if anything, it's just creepier now because it's a half burned building. Absolutely. But yeah, you, you can feel a little bit of that fantasy if you want. And now with that being said, I think that's just about all that I've I've got to say well, i think that is the case of the murder of marilyn depew aka the crimes of dennis depew aka the crimes that inspired the intro sequence of jeepers creepers so well, get into it thanks johnny i hate it yeah you're welcome i hate it too <laughs> now thank you to my sources who i don't hate unsolved mysteries season three episode 23 or episode 20 as it shows up on shady old amazon prime for some whack-ass reason they like to switch it up they like to try it girl also thank you to associated press for man wanted for michigan murder featured on tv dies during shootout written in march 21st of 1991 by ap staff thank you to wikitree.com for their entry on dennis henry depew as well as their case or their entry on Marilyn Depew that was maintained by Catherine Hondros in September of 2014. Thank you to monstersandcritics.com for Dennis Depew's murder of his wife may have inspired Jeepers Creepers. Man with the Van examines the real case written by Jerry Brown in March of 2020. Thank you to the Orlando Sentinel for a man wanted for murder dies in police shootout written in March of 20 or sorry of 1991 of 2091. Oh yes. Way clear. off in the future baby. Thank you 
you to iHorror.com for the real-life killer that inspired Jeepers Creepers, written by Admin in July of 2014. Thank you to geocaching.com for unsolved mysteries, Dennis DePew slash Jeepers Creepers, cache by Mick RR Conductor in April of 2015. First time I've ever had to cite a geocache. Yeah. Diva. How do you even say that? Geocache? I, yeah, geocache. C-A-C-H-E. That's a hard thing to say. Yeah, get into it. Are you sure it's not like geocache? No, I'm sure. Okay. I'm pretty sure, at least come for me all right also thank you to wickedhorror.com for dennis depew the true story of the real life killer that inspired jeepers creepers written by sill in september of 2020 thank you to the daily reporter for arson suspected and abandoned school fire written by don reed in march of 2017 and finally thank you to unsolved mystery case.blogspot.com for unsolved mysteries dennis depew written by senin in april of 2020 Boom. And snaps for Unsolved Mysteries, helping mysteries be solved. Boom. I got your boyfriend. I got your man. I I got got him. him. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you, Johnny. You're welcome. Thank you. Now, Tyler, it's your turn. It is my turn. And this week, I'm going to be taking us to somewhere colder and maybe even darker than we've gone in quite a while. Even colder and darker than Michigan? Uh-huh. Damn. Yeah, because this week I'm going to be covering the Belcher Islands murders. Okay. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate, Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, all in a single sugar-free stick. Liquid IV is perfect for daily use before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, or on long flights. Basically, anytime you need a pick-me-up, however you hydrate. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco. Or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com. Is it cold up in Belcher Islands? Where's Belcher Islands? Belcher Islands is in Canada. But it is a part of Nunavut. Oh, shit. And for those who don't know, Nunavut is one of our three territories. And it's very, very north. Nunavut is actually the very tippy, tippy, top, top of Canada. Mm -hmm. The part that kind of hits Greenland. Our power top. Yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. truly. Yeah. So it's cold. We're not really at the tippy, tip, top of Nunavut, though. We're more so at the tippy, tip, bottom of Nunavut. Okay. And it is a set of islands called the Belcher Islands. Okay, and thank you to be scientific. It's not the tippy tip bottom, it's the bitty bitty bottom. Thank you so much. You're welcome. As the scientist in the room, I'll just make it clear. Right. So the Belcher Islands are an archipelago located in the southern part of Canada's Hudson Bay. Now, if you don't know what an archipelago is, it is simply a group of islands, like a bunch of islands all together in one spot. I'm into it. And the Belcher Islands are made up of 1,500 islands clustered in a 3,000 square kilometer radius. Man, people's concept of Canada is probably just exploding (laughs) right now. Right? I love this. Yeah. Now, 
The shape of Belcher's Islands is really kind of hard to describe, and the way my brain chose to describe it was that it kind of looks like the cross-section of a marble rye bread. Okay. You know when you cut the marble rye bread and you have the two different ryes kind of just like mixing in, zigzagging around each other? Yeah, I see you. It looks kind of like that. And you'll see what I mean when you go to the social media and look at the pictures of the island. Delicious. Either way, the Belcher Islands belongs to, as I said, Nunavut. And Nunavut is the massive territory in Canada. Now, before the Belcher Islands were renamed by land thieves, the islands were originally referred to as the Sanikulak. I believe that's how it's pronounced. Okay. I'm going to do my very best with the Inuit pronunciations. And again, Inuit people were the people who lived on the island, and they lived there since about 500 BC. So they've been there for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of living on the island, the Belcher Islands were and are a very harsh environment. The islands are mostly rock, so very little flora can actually exist on the surface. There are basically no trees, and so obviously agriculture, as we know it, just really isn't a thing on the islands. Mm -hmm. People have lived on the islands, as I said, for thousands and thousands of years, and they survived by hunting seals primarily, eider ducks, snowy owls, belugas, walruses, and even the occasional polar bear in wintertime. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. And fishing, of course, was also a necessity of life and is a necessity of life on these islands. Mm-hmm. Now, because the islands were so barren, not many colonializers paid it much mind. It didn't even start popping up on their maps until the early 20th century. And by then, white folks had pretty much stolen every inch of land from the east to the west. Mm-hmm. Now, eventually, the Hudson Bay Company established a trading post on the islands to hunt seals for their fur, and first this didn't interfere too much with the indigenous communities, which consisted of only a few hundred people. Okay. But as the 20th century marched on, Western influences were harder and harder to escape. You had the controversial Nanook of the North documentary, if you want to call it a documentary, that came out in the 1920s. And that really exoticized native life through a colonial gaze in the Northern Territories. And then, of course, you've already had the White Crusaders who felt that it was their duty to spread the gospel of the Lord to the edges of the earth. And that's Lord with a T, thank you. Exactly. We praise her. That's right. So the white people, they spent time pushing the Holy Bible here and there and everywhere. And by the 1930s, most indigenous communities, including the ones on Belcher's Island, were practicing some form of Christianity. And this is where our story begins. So picture it. It's the Belcher Islands, and it's 1941. World War II was well underway, but for the Inuit communities living on the islands, this was a reality far removed from their own. Wintertime had come early to the Belcher Islands, like it usually did, but this winter of 1941 was particularly harsh. Now, as we've established, resources on the islands were scarce. Summer living was much easier. You had seal fur, which provided enough comfort, and gathering food was much easier, but... In the wintertime, you would have to challenge Mother Nature for those bare necessities. Mm -hmm. Seal fur was not warm enough in the wintertime, so the Inuit communities would often have to fashion parkas out of eider duck down, which would take a lot of ducks to fashion. I was going to say. And in the wintertime, they would also move into snow houses, a.k.a. igloos. Now, as I said, the winter of 1941 was particularly 
bad. Most of this was due to the scarcity of seals, and it's likely that they were overhunted by the Hudson Bay Company trading post, and this devastated many of the Inuit communities on the island. But there was one Inuit community living on the southern end of the islands that would not only have to contend with the scarcity of the land, but also with each other. So this particular community was made up of 40 or so people, and many of them were actually quite young. Most of them were in their late 20s or early 30s. Some of them were in their teens. They were children, of course, and there were also a few people who were a little bit older. Okay, kind of like a midsummer situation, but like always winter. Exactly. Yeah. Midwinter. Yeah. That's what we'll call Perma-winter. it. Perma winter. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in order to survive, the community relied on some of its best hunters and gatherers, but even the most respected leaders, 34-year-old Peter Salas, was failing to provide enough sustenance for the community. And the reality was, if things did not change, the community would face the very harrowing reality of starvation. Yeah, shit. Yeah, and it was really this desperate need for salvation that probably allowed for the following events to unfold. Now, as I said, over the years, a few New Testament Bibles written in syllabics had been planted on the island and were being used passively to spread Christianity to these isolated communities. The problem was, these Bibles were just left on the islands and therefore they were open to interpretation. Furthermore, who's to say how proper the translations were, how accurate the translations were? I wonder if any of them, though, ended up extrapolating from the Bible that homosexuality was a sin or that queerness was a sin in general. Like, I wonder if that ended up shining through then if they were all open to their own interpretation. I mean, that's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. But one that I do not have the answer for. Well, you know, I didn't figure you would, but I'm just posing it to the room. Right. Yeah. Now, beyond the fact that they could be um, misinterpreting the text or that the text could be poorly translated at this time even in the western societies families were encouraged not to read the bible at home for risk of misinterpreting the text so if people who attended catholic church services weekly could run the risk of misinterpreting the bible then an isolated community that had no history with christianity could most definitely misinterpret the text but it's more fun that way that's right And that brings us to a man named Charlie Oyerak. Now, Charlie Oyerak, which autocorrect liked to... um, Oh, yeah. Autocorrect (laughs) is going to come for your wig today. It did. It kept autocorrecting it to Charlie or your ass. Yeah, that colonial fucking autocorrect. Uh Uh-uh. It's not featuring it today. So autocorrect was of no help for me in Mm -hmm. this regard. But anyway... Although I guess it lived up to the name Whiteout, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Truly. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, as I was saying, Charlie Oyrak, he was a 27-year-old man and a father of two living in the starving Inuit community on the southern end of the islands. Now, Oyrak had a little prominence in the community, or sorry, he had little prominence in the community, but he would spend much of his time reading syllabic copies of the New Testament. He learned all about Jesus, Mary, Joseph, the angels, the disciples, God, and of course, salvation and the second coming of Christ. Mm-hmm. On January 18th, 1941, Charlie Oyrak stood before his community and preached the word of the Lord. He told them that this moment of suffering was only temporary because they would soon seek salvation in the return of God. Furthermore, Iraq declared himself 
as the reincarnation of Jesus. And then he looked to Paul Sala, who you remember was kind of the best hunter in the community. Sure. And declared that he was God. Damn. It's like not long after making your own interpretation of the Bible and you are already positing yourself as the chosen one. Yeah. Damn, look at humanity there. <laughs> right? And that's exactly what it's happened. It's something in the book, baby. That's all I'm going to say. Uh-huh. Dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. Now, it may or may not surprise you to learn that a lot of the people in the community actually started to believe everything that Oyarak preached. Like, he really didn't have to try very hard to win them over. And it was probably because it was like the only glimmer of hope any of them had seen in quite a long time. And the promise of rescue from their suffering and impending starvation was just really enticing and welcomed. Like, they really wanted to believe that what Charlie was saying was true. Absolutely. Now, Charlie Oyrak said that soon salvation would come and they were to look to the sky. Well, a few nights later, a meteor fell through the sky amongst the northern lights. And this, Oyrak declared, was a sign. And soon they would be saved and they no longer needed to work to survive. Shit, I mean, that was lucky of him. Right. <laughs> yeah, he's like thanking the stars for that meteor, honey. Literally. Yeah, he's like wink gunning up at the heavens for that one. Yeah. Now... What would happen next can only be described by one word, just complete hysteria. So because salvation was coming in the form of basically the end of the world, and Charlie was saying that they didn't need to work anymore because what was the point, mm -hmm. they ended up killing a majority of their sleigh dogs. And the reason why they did this, people believe, was just because... A, they didn't need their sled to work anymore, and it also more or less trapped them like yeah. everybody was stuck anybody who didn't believe that what charlie was saying was true couldn't necessarily get away okay can't say i see it the same way i don't think all the dogs need to die even though you see them as more of like a utility thing than you know i do because i get it like you know in certain areas and certain communities like pets as we know it have a very different function and you know right. especially you know work dogs and stuff like that but like diva no no but i mean it could have also been posited as like uh in a way, a more humane thing to do, because if everybody was going to be leaving the earthly plane in some way, shape or fashion, mm. abandoning the dogs to starve was not necessarily, you know, the tea. Yeah. Now, they killed the dogs. They also destroyed a lot of the equipment that they had with them. Many of the guns were dismantled and broken and just buried. And it was just madness, truly. Now, all they had to do was wait for salvation, which would come to them again as the end of the world. But a full week would go by and salvation had yet to arrive. Now, on January 26th, 1941, people were gathering in a large igloo and they were there to listen to Oyarak and Salah preach, who, again, were believed to be Jesus and God, respectively. Mm -hmm. Now, by then, they had appointed a few disciples and a great conversation about the return of God was underway when 15-year-old Sarah Apakau addressed the group. She asked those present to consider whether or not Jesus had truly returned to them. 
by now they were all starving more so than they already have been and she recommended that perhaps they should all resume the life they had been leading just in case salvation would not come to them in time i love her idea yeah wonderful idea a moment of clarity thanks to a teenager yeah we love a plan b mm -hmm. we love a spunky teenager with a plan now Sarah was the voice of reason, but reason was not to be had. Oyarak and Sala quickly called Sarah out as the devil amongst them, and she was rushed by one of the disciples, her own brother Alec, who grabbed her by her hair and began to beat her in the forehead with a wooden stick that would be used to beat snow off of parkas. Ugh. Now, a hot prime stove was lit by other witnesses, and it was held up to Sarah's face very, very closely in an attempt to determine if she was good or evil. I guess they thought if they threatened her with fire, it would somehow draw the evil out of her. Excuse me, you just determined that she was the devil, allegedly, and now you're trying to figure out if she's good or evil? You're just trying to make sure. So what kind of reversal on the devil do you have here? Because now, what, are you going to, like, point the devil out among you and then say, oh, no, but he's actually a good guy. The fire test told us so. Yeah. Fuck right? you. Exactly. Now, there was no rational explanation to explain why they did any of this. Yeah. Someone in the room declared that she was the devil and Alec swung once more with the wooden stick, striking his sister in the head and knocking her unconscious. Now, when Sarah fell to the floor, she was dragged out of the igloo and into the cold snow and open air. And another 17-year-old named Akinik grabbed a rifle, one that they had not yet destroyed, Ooh. and towering over Sarah's unconscious body, she brought the butt of the rifle down onto her head repeatedly until she was well and surely dead. The fuck? After this happened, everybody was more or less pleased and thankful because Satan was gone. Oh yeah, so it's high fives all around. More or less. Fuck that. Now, at least one man in the community, a 47-year-old man named Kitawiak, condemned the murder, declaring that this was not an act of God who would not allow something like this yeah. to happen. Team Kitawiak. Yeah. Totally. But before a confrontation could occur, Kitawiak excused himself and retired to his own igloo. The thing is... The next morning, Oyarak and Sala, with one of their disciples, 35-year-old Adilakauk, surrounded Kioak's igloo and murdered him through the window with a harpoon and a gun, declaring that he too was the devil. Oh, fuck that. Now, shortly after these murders, the group met up with another Inuit group, and things kind of died down for a week or two. The two groups decided to come together as a community, and they built new igloos, sharing the resources, and Irak and Salah set forth convincing the new group that they were Jesus and God. Yeah, they're like, all that other stuff we did, like, that was for you, like, that's good shit, you yeah, know? exactly. Yeah. Now, Oyarak must have had some sort of powers of persuasion because in a very short amount of time, his following had doubled and everyone would wait with him for the day of salvation. Ooh. So he basically convinced this whole entirely new group of people who were strangers that, yeah, he was Jesus and the end of days was coming. He must have either had like real pretty eyes or real crazy eyes. You know what I mean? Maybe he had one crazy one and one, one pretty, pretty one. one. Yeah, yeah, I like that. <laughs> Now, among the new followers was a 40-year-old man named Quarak and his 26-year-old son named Alec Epuk. And 
They were perhaps the only new members who disputed the claims set forth by Oyrak and Sala. But on February 9th, Alec Epuk confronted Oyrak and Sala, and an argument ensued. Now, before things got too out of hand, Epak chose to walk away. Unfortunately, he was declared the devil, and his father-in-law, Korak, was ordered by Oyrak to shoot him in the back of the head, and Korak, who had more or less drinking the Kool-Aid by this point, didn't hesitate and shot his own son-in-law in the head twice. Shit. Now, Epoch fell to the ground, and he was the third person dead. And fear that the devil was amongst them, turning them against each other, was now a greater risk than the risk of starvation. Mm -hmm. A few weeks later, in early March, the only white man on the islands, a man named Ernest Riddle, was passing through the area. Now, Riddle was the manager of the faraway Hudson Trading Co. post on Belcher's Islands and was traveling to Great Whale River in Quebec on the coast. And he was going there for business. Mm -hmm. Now, Riddle was more or less a little lost and he came across this community. Unsure of how to navigate the terrain, he requested some assistance navigating his journey over the frozen ocean, likely promising some sort of compensation for the effort. Now, Salah, a.k.a. God, was the best ice navigator in the community, and so he would end up traveling with Riddle, leaving Oyarak to watch over their followers, who thought that Salah's departure could be the start of the salvation that they had been promised. Okay, so they were seeing this as a sign. Perhaps. Mm -hmm. Now, Salah accompanied Riddle on the treacherous journey to Great Whale River, and after a few days traveling across the icy bay, the two arrived in Quebec. Now, during the days spent in Great Whale River, Salah had seemingly started to come to his senses. Nourishment and sustenance broke the spell, and Salas quickly confessed to the horrors that had befallen his community. I like to imagine he's just like slowly looking at his hands, you know, turning them over, being like, oh, wow, I'm not God. Right? These aren't godly <laughs> hands. My God. Yeah. My me. Oh, my me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was definitely one of those moments. You know, it was just like, look yourself in the mirror and you're just like, I am not Madonna. In, yeah, in, exactly. In fact, I'm a sinner. Yeah. Although I guess in a way that kind of does make you Madonna, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> anyway, sorry about that. Absolutely fine. Yeah. Just as the Madonna gay in the room, I had to point that out. 100%. Thank you. Now, on March 13th, Ernest Riddle sent a telegram from Quebec to Ottawa, Rich Red. Three murders committed during an outbreak of religious fanaticism. Advice, immediate investigation to prevent further outbreaks. Okay. So, obviously, when Salah confessed, Riddle found out and he decided to, you know, do something yeah. about He's it. He's like, hey, Ottawa, we all think we're God and we can't stop killing. 100%. Now, with the telegram sent, Riddle would travel back to Belcher's Islands with Salah to welcome the authorities unaware of the horrors that awaited them on the return. Now, days before they returned, Salah's 25-year-old sister, Mina, awoke in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. She got up, ran outside, and started waking others up, exclaiming that Jesus had come and was taking them to heaven. 
She provoked about a dozen women and children out of their igloos and began to run towards the shore. And I have to say the temperatures were reportedly about minus 30 degrees Celsius. Oh, shit. And the wind chill was really high. Yeah. Now, despite the bitter cold, Mina shed her clothes and stood at the shoreline, gesturing up towards the sky and compelling the women and children who followed her to run out onto the icy bay. No, titties in, go back to bed. Mm -hmm. She ran from person to person, ripping off their clothes, exclaiming that salvation had come and they had to meet their savior in the nude. A few minutes passed, however, and Mina broke down into tears and the hysteria that she quickly began started to die down. There would be no salvation that night. A few mothers hurried off of the ice, grabbed their children and dressed them, and the temperatures again were excruciating. Some of the people in the short amount of time that they were outside were already experiencing severe bouts of frostbite, and only about half of them were able to make it back to the igloos successfully, leaving about six people out on the ice to die. Yeah, God, and the rest of them, once they get back, they're just able to cut diamonds with their rock-hard nipples for days because like ooh, that's cold it's real cold Mm -mm. so among those left to freeze on the ice was mina's 55 year old mother her 32 year old sister and four other children a child named moses who was 12 johnny who was seven johansi who was six and peter salah's eight-year-old son alec now salah's wife anotelic who was a part of the group had tried to save alec but she was unable to do so she was able to get him about half dressed but she was already frozen herself and she was carrying a baby in her arms and she had to leave alec out on the ice hoping that he would be able to make it back the unfortunate thing was he was already too frozen to move now two days later the community made an effort to retrieve the bodies from the ice but many of them were frozen in place and just couldn't be moved and had to be left. Yeah. And by now, the group had no faith in God, no faith in salvation, and the weight of the horrors they were left to endure was an unwelcomed reality check. Absolutely. Now, days later, Riddle and Sala returned to learn of the horrors that had occurred during their absence. Riddle, just completely beyond himself, continued on to the Hudson Bay trading post and frantically telegraphed the RCMP for a second time. And despite the urgency of the situation, it would take the RCMP almost four weeks to make it to the Belcher's Islands. Four fucking weeks? Four weeks. And the reason because every plane and every pilot in the country was literally in Europe fighting World War II. And it took them a long time to find a skilled enough pilot to kind of fly in the temperatures there and also a plane that could withstand the journey shit now the rcmp when they did arrive arrived with a coroner and two investigators they spent six days traveling around the belchers islands and uncovered many of the bodies much of were well preserved yeah. because of the ice and the snow They began a round of interviews and had many witnesses come forward. So it really didn't take them very long to piece together what had happened on the islands that winter. 
No one in the community tried to evade the crimes, and on April 16th, Oyarak, who incited the series of events, Mina, who led six people to the deaths, and one of the disciples, Adlico, were arrested and flown to Ottawa, which would have really been the first time any of them stepped foot off the Belcher's Island. So, talk about culture shock. Uh, yeah. Now, in Ottawa, the justice people really were trying to figure out what to do, and they eventually decided that Oyarak, Mina, and Adlicook should not be tried in Ontario, but rather on the Belcher Islands themselves. The reasoning for this was because they wanted to, to show the indigenous people there what law and order looked like. Oh, fuck that. I thought they were going to say that they wanted them to be tried by like a jury of their peers or something like that. But no. No. Yeah. The jury was actually made up of nobody from Belcher's Islands. Yeah. They had a really hard time actually sourcing a, a jury because there were just nobody to stand it and most of the people who were living on the islands didn't even know what the fuck was going on yeah and basically the colonizers are just like well what a lovely opportunity to be able to talk down to indigenous people am i right right yeah yeah it's a wonderful moment of show and tell i know yeah yeah total bullshit Anyway, the trial began on Belcher's Islands on August 19th, 1941, after months and months of planning. It was basically like fire Festival, but somehow like way worse. Yeah. When the court officials arrived at the islands with reporters from Toronto, they received a warm welcome by the islanders. And this welcome really kind of took them off guard because they weren't really sure that anybody understood the gravity of the situation. And they didn't know if the people on the island completely understood what was going on and that was probably true because yeah. you just had this random thing being imposed on their community absolutely but in true bully fashion they're like wait but so you're not gonna react but that's the reason i'm doing this right what the, the, pageantry, the pageantry come on please yeah exactly but really western law had not yet been imposed on the islanders like western religion had been which let's not forget was more or less the catalyst of this entire Entire series of events. T. Now, a giant tent was set up by the RCMP, and this tent became the courtroom. And best believe they decked the hell out of this tent with the Union Jack, pictures of the royal family, and the white European paraphernalia. Of course. The judge even had his cute little, like, Oh, powder the powdered powder, wig? Powder puff wig. Uh-huh. Oh. Yeah. Oh, he had a poofy do. The poofy do. Yeah, a little poofy do. Exactly. Yeah. Now, the audience in court, of course, was made up of the Inuit people, and they all sat on the floor on their sealskin rugs, and attendance was more or less mandatory, even though an outbreak of influenza, which killed at least one Inuit woman, had broken out brought to the island from Ontario. Ooh. Thank you, Ontario. Yeah. Now, there were seven people accused of murder. There was Alec Apaco and Akinik, who were jointly charged with the murder of Sarah. There was Peter Sala and Adlekuk, who were jointly charged with the murder of Kitoiak. And then, of course, you had Charlie Oyarak and Quarak, each charged with the murder of Alec Ikpak. Okay. Now, Mina was found criminally insane, if you forgotten she was the one who led people out into the icy waters to oh, die yeah. so she wasn't necessarily going to be charged or found guilty but 
She was present during the trial, and they had strapped her to a stretcher, which was bookend by doctors. So she was basically there to be made an example out of. Oh, great. Now, the trial was carried out with little fanfare. Each party answered to their crimes, and it became clear that the crimes were fueled by their misinterpretation of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Because they would just be like, okay, why did you kill this person? Oh, because I was told he was the devil. Why did you think he was the devil? Oh, because it was in the Bible. Oh, that kind fuck. of thing. Now, similar to the case of Jack Fiddler, the Wendigo Hunter, do yeah. you remember? Oh, yeah. A similar Canadian case, which Tyler did cover on a past episode, if you don't know what we're talking about. Exactly. A little plug so, there. Yeah. Yeah. So just like in the case with Jack Fiddler, the case with the Belcher Islands murders, they more or less determined that Canadian justice system rules couldn't really be applied in the Belcher Islands because they were two distinctively different worlds and the extremities of the events were more or less linked to temporary insanity and mass hysteria that was brought on by harsh living conditions, near starvation, and once again, fueled by the misinterpretation of the Bible. Mm -hmm. So in the end, the guilty parties were sentenced as followed. Mina and Akinik were found to be criminally insane and were ordered into indefinite custody. Salah and Oyarak were sentenced to two years imprisonment for manslaughter, and Aldecook was sentenced to one year in prison. As for Quarak, he was free to stay on the islands, but he was forced to provide a full supply of food for the families of the arrested people until their return. Shit. Now, Charlie Oyarak died after contracting tuberculosis while imprisoned in May of 1942. He was around 29 years old. One year later, Peter Sala, Adilkuk, and Kinnik and Mina, who had returned to normal, were all released from custody, but under the promise to never return to the Belcher Islands. They agreed and moved to the coast of Great Whale River. Eventually, though, Salah did return to the Belcher Islands as an old man, and allegedly he lived a life of isolation and was shunned by the community until his death in 1987. Apparently, he came to blame himself entirely for what had happened. He blamed himself for the nine lives lost and lived his entire life regretting it. He was even quoted saying, like, I could have stopped this, oh, and I didn't. Shit. And that is the very complicated and the very complex story of the Belcher Islands murders. Mm -hmm. Now, thank you to my sources, the Canadian Encyclopedia.ca for their entry on Belcher Islands, which was written by Michael C. Hampson on February 6, 2006, and edited on January 23rd, 2014. Thank you to the Belcher Islands of Hudson Bay, their discovery and exploration, which was an article written by Robert J. Flaherty in the Geographical Review on June 1918. Thank you to artistsnotaspectatorsport.com for Nanook of the North and Alternative Facts, which was written by Anna, no last name, on February 9th, 2017. Thank you to mclean's.ca for their article, Lawrence Millman Revisits a Grizzly Mass Murder in Canada's North, which was written by Mike Doherty on January 5th, 2017. Thank you to the University of Alberta for 
the thesis called Religious Practice and Ceremonial Clothing on the Belcher Islands, Northwest Territories, which was written by Deborah Nancy Caseberg in the fall of 1993. Thank you to jmortonmusings.blogspot.com for their article, When God and Satan Battled in the Barren, which was written by James C. Morton on March 20th, 2014. Thank you to Britannica, Britannica.com for their entry on Belcher's Islands, which was written by the editors of the Encyclopedia Britannica. And finally, thank you to wbur.org for providing the article, Cambridge Writer Tells of Little-Known 1941 Belcher Islands Murders in At the End of the World, which was written by Carl Lassiofano on January 17th, 2017. Damn, well, thank you, Tyler. Yes. I never heard of that before. That's wild. I hadn't either, and yeah, uh, yeah it's quite a tale. Yeah. Um, these end-of-the-world cult situations, they, they, they go bad real quick yeah and you know canada has some doozies when Listen, it comes to Hill kids. yeah Whew. diva all right well on that note do you want to move on to the next segment then let's do it all right so time for some big questions tyler i want to know something what did you learn today okay Today I learned that if I am going to go into hiding for whatever reason, mm -hmm. hopefully not for like really, really bad reasons, Yeah, I do want my uh, fake name to be Queen. Okay. I want to be Tyler Queen. I love that. Mm -hmm. Would you have a different first name in mind? Oh. It's kind of like choosing a drag name, really, when you think about it. It's true. Yeah. I'll have to get back to you on that one. Okay, we'll see you next week. Yeah. yeah I'm going to hold you accountable <laughs> for this one. Sounds good. All right, well, I guess this week... I learned that no motherfucker walking this planet is God. If they tell you they're God, you walk the other way, baby. They're lying. Mm-hmm. They lie and they lie and they're Liza Minnelli. Now, that is what I learned. I love it. Thank you. Now, do you want to read a review? I do, and I have a review this week. Yeah? Is it a cute one? Is it one that's going to make me deem with joy? It absolutely will. Okay. And this one comes from... Crumbs oh, it, from, oh, it crumbs from? Yes. It comes from Perfect Sonnet, who is in the United States of America, and it says, I think we're BFFs now. Five stars. Oh, oh okay. I'm going to imagine that to the tune of I think we're alone now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think we're BFFs now. It works. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So they go on to say, I came across that spooky during a random browse of my podcast app after feeling pretty disillusioned by my normal content. What's up, 2020 fatigue? Hey. Wait, is that you or them? Oh, no, that's them. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, after listening to a couple recent episodes, I jumped back to start from the beginning and have been listening pretty much nonstop. Oh, yeah? Johnny? I, and I, oop. <laughs> Whenever I hear that people went back to the first few episodes, I'm like, oh, and you're still listening. Right. Oh, love that. They walk through the fire, baby. Mm -hmm. Now, it goes on to say, Johnny and Tyler warm my spooky little shriveled heart by covering a wide variety of things from hauntings to cryptids to true crime, all while maintaining an air of lightheartedness and respect. They cite sources. They respect victims. They are support systems everyone needs in their life. And once I heard Johnny liken a musical seance to a middle school marching band trying to play Godspeed. <laughs> you black emperor. I mean, yeah, that's it, girl. Jonathan Coons, <laughs> the spirit jam band. I'm there. Yes. I basically turned into that, quote, how it feels like to listen to podcasts, fake friends meme. Oh, we've all been that meme. Thanks, gals. 
Perfect Sonnet. I love you, Perfect Sonnet. Godspeed you, Emperor you. Yeah, Godspeed us all. All right. Well, if you want to be just like our new friend, Perfect Sonnet, you can leave us a review on whatever podcast app you're listening to us on. It is a really great way to support the show, show us that you love us, and it lets those like computers that run the podcast apps and all the charts and that shit know that we're worth spitting at. Patooey. Yeah, absolutely. Now, if you're listening to us on a podcast app that you can't leave a review on, you can always email it to us. We'll give you the address to do that in a minute, but it's really cute. Now, if you're looking for another way to support the show and you want to get some real cool shit out of it for yourself, or you want to attend those cool live stream events that I was talking about way back in housekeeping, you can join up on the secret society that doesn't suck. Not only do you get all that, but regardless of what tier you sign up at, you get access to our weekly mini episodes called Spooky Snacks. And they're a good time, baby. They are. Yeah. So that's all over at patreon.com slash that's spooky. And we would really appreciate it. 100% we'd love to see you there yeah and it helps keep the lights on over here so we'll love you forever like you for always yeah now don't forget to follow us on social media we are on twitter and we are on instagram or even on facebook but we're on twitter and instagram at that spooky pod we're also on facebook at that spooky pod as well oh hello facebook.com slash all that keeping mm-hmm. it in the family yeah now you can also email us at the same handle at gmail.com so that's t-h-a-t-s-s-p-o-o-k-y-p-o-d at gmail.com you can send us your own freaky shit that's happened to you in story form we might read it someday on the show baby it's true yeah tell us weird shit that's happened in your hometown to family members people that are just you know a few degrees of separation away from you we don't care we're cool like that yeah we're cool moms whatever (laughs) but yeah send it to us over there or like we were saying if you're listening to us on spotify send us your review on there as well yeah and also we are total dick pigs for pet photos so just send those our way by all means we love a pet photo please and thank you now when you're done doing all that don't forget to check out our website, thatspooky.com. You can listen to episodes from there. You can get show notes from there. You can access the Secret Society from there. You can email us from there. And you can go to our store. Yeah, or you can just go directly to thatspooky.com slash store. You can pre-order your Spooky Bitch shirt there. You can get a Spooky Bitch pin while you're at it over there. It's real cute. All the things that you can do. Yeah, so find us there, babies. Now, I think with that being said, that brings us to the end of the show. We're done. It's finished. It's over. We're feeling real cute. We're looking real good. I think that this was a good one today. I think so. Yeah, a pretty heavy true crime one. But yeah. no, I'm not mad at that. No. Yeah. Not not bad. It's like putting a little bit of extra pepper. Sometimes you just want that kick. Yeah, yeah. Some days you just want it like that. So that's how you're getting it, babies. Now, hope we all had fun today. Of course, we will see you on the next one. If you're on the Secret Society, we'll be seeing you a little bit sooner. That's always cute. Later this week, you're going to be getting a BuzzFeed quiz-filled mini episode. Maybe we'll even throw a choose-your-own-adventure in there. You never know. Who knows how spicy we're going to be feeling at the time. But yeah. We'll be around, babies. You know where to find us. So, you're cute, you're fierce, all that good stuff. Especially that person who tweeted us this week (laughs) and shouted out that we compliment our listeners at the end of every episode. And usually when they're receiving said compliment, they're at work, decked out in, you know some work gear Uh yeah we see you we hear you and we love you baby yes we do yeah so kissy kisses and as always if you're gonna be a bitch be a spooky bitch Bye. bye hey prime members you can listen to that spooky early and ad free on amazon music download the amazon music app today 
Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.